Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Nothing is more effective in challenging criticism of a program than by pointing to the generosity of the program, the speed of the program, the efficiency of the program. This is Sid Finkelstein. Welcome to the Sidcast episode number 50, the final episode in season one. It's been a tremendous journey for almost a full year, and I've appreciated all of your comments and suggestions and listeners and sharing the podcast with many others. It's really been fun, and one of the things that I always thought would be so much fun, one of the reasons I did this in the first place is to have these in-depth conversations with really fascinating people, to learn who they are, how they think, how they became who they became, and what lessons all of us can draw from that. That's just something that really appealed to me as a teacher, as a leader, as a learner. And we've tried to bring that to you week after week throughout the season. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to have a little sign off and give you a little bit of information about what to look for in season two after a break. But now let's get right to episode 50. And that's with Ken Feinberg. I've known Ken Feinberg for several years. He came to my executive education course at Tuck School at Dartmouth several times to talk about dispute resolution and negotiations, topics for which, well, every single one of us listening today, whether a person in business, whether a parent, or whether pretty much uh, anyone doing anything, we need to be good at. We need to be good at solving conflict and negotiating and getting along and managing people. But why Ken? Well, after all, there are lots of academics out there who do research on negotiations, and Ken's a lawyer. He's not even an academic. The answer is pretty Pretty uh, simple. The answer is that Ken Feinberg was the person President Bush and Attorney General Ashcroft put in charge of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. His job was extraordinarily wrenching. He needed to determine how much money to compensate victims of the 9-11 tragedy for their pain and for their unspeakable suffering. How can anyone possibly do that? Well, that's Ken Feinberg's story. Taking on this effort pro bono and learning as he told me that while it's not easy, while he said it's not that easy to come up with an economic model of how much to value a human life, it's absolutely impossible to do so without confronting enormous emotional anguish. Often a lot of that anguish directed directly at Ken. Ken Feinberg has now been asked to determine compensation and justice in almost all of the major tragedies or economic crises of the last 20 years. The Penn State with the Jerry Sandusky child abuse scandal, horrible story. The executive compensation, financial executives during the financial crisis. GM's recall for faulty ignition switches. The Boston Marathon bombing. The Volkswagen emission scandal. The Archdiocese of New York compensation fund for victims of sexual abuse by clergy. Boeing 747 MAX aircraft crash victims. They're among the most well-known, but not all of them. In our conversation, Ken shares some of the stories of the victims and what they said to him. And they're stories that really will stick with me and probably for you for a very, very long time. Remarkably, and coinciding with the release of this episode of the Sidcast, the world premiere of the film Worth, starring Michael Keaton and based on Ken's book about his experiences as the master of the September 11 Victim Compensation Fund, just took place at the Sundance Film Festival. It's an anticipated national distribution later in 2020. Let's listen to Ken Feinberg's story. This is Sid Finkelstein on the Sidcast with Ken Feinberg in his offices in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Thanks for being with us. Glad on to the, join. On the podcast. You've had really a stellar and intriguing career where you've had a career in law and dispute resolution in particular, but you also had a particular emphasis or twist to it where you are really the leading person in America, maybe the world for all I know, on helping solve almost intractable problems when bad things happen. And I want to ask you about one of those really terrible things, maybe the worst of all, which was September 11th. And you were responsible for administering the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. So first of all, how did that happen? And then I want to get into kind of how you did that job. 13 days after the 9-11 attacks, Congress passed a law signed by President Bush creating a very unique, unprecedented compensation program where any victim or survivor, family, 
lost loved ones on the planes or at the World Trade Center or at the Pentagon could voluntarily submit a claim. I would review the claim, and if the claim was eligible and compensable, I would pay that claimant using public taxpayer money. Unprecedented. Mm. Attorney General Ashcroft, under the statute, asked me to be the appointed special master or claims administrator under that program. And over a 33-month period, I evaluated about 7,300 claims from individuals, survivors, or injured victims. And I distributed $7.1 billion in taxpayer money to 5,300 eligible claimants. So actually, 5,300, 7,300, not everyone actually received something. That is correct. About 2,000 individuals were deemed ineligible because they didn't satisfy the statutory criteria Mm -hmm. for eligibility. Mm -hmm. And in my discretion, I determined that 5,300 people were eligible and should be paid. And about 2,000 were ineligible under the criteria and were um, not compensated. Now, you're a professional. You've done things like this in the past, although not at this scale, not up to that scale at that time. But how did you feel personally when the government came to you, the attorney general came to you with this type of responsibility? Well, I felt a patriotic duty, certainly, Mm -hmm. to take on this assignment. How about emotionally? Emotionally, very, very debilitating. It turned out to be the most difficult part of the assignment Mm -hmm. was dealing with victims, horribly disfigured, burned victims, or families who lost loved ones. The airplanes are the World Trade Center or Pentagon. You learn in these programs that the toughest challenge by far is the emotional context of doing this work. Yeah, yeah. And so how did it work kind of mechanically? Did, Did people come into your office and talk to you or their lawyers are they filed they file a claim of course there's paperwork but how much time did you spend face to face with with these claimants that was entirely up to each claimant there was no requirement Mm -hmm. under the law and the regulations that i established there was no requirement that any claimant come to visit me that was their option Mm -hmm. if they wanted it and if they wanted to you said yes Uh, absolutely and half the people who filed a claim came to see me i conducted myself about 950 confidential private hearings Mm -hmm. with individual applicants. Another 500, I didn't have time, another 500 met with my staff Mm -hmm. because there's only so many hours in the day. Sure. And uh, that was the toughest part of the assignment. Yeah. Could you share a little bit, obviously, without any revealing of confidentiality of some of the stories that you heard? I'll give you two right off the top that I I will uh, never forget. Yeah. 24-year-old woman came to me sobbing. Mr. Feinberg, I lost my husband. He was a fireman at the World Trade Center, and he left me with our two children, six and four. Now, under your formulas, I've already been notified that you're going to pay me tax-free $2.5 million. I want that money in 30 days. I said to him, Mrs. Jones, you're going to get the money. This is public taxpayer money. The Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, Mm -hmm. has to do its due diligence. It may take 60 days or 90 days, but you'll get your money. No. 30 days. I said to her, why do you need the money in 30 days? She said, why? I'll tell you why, Mr. Feinberg. I have terminal cancer. Mm. I have 10 weeks to live. My husband was going to take care of our two children. Now they're going to be orphans. I have got to receive this money. I've got to set up a trust. I've got to get a guardian to take care of the funds and take care of the kids. I only have my faculties for a few more weeks. You have got to help me. Well, we raced down to the Treasury, we walked the check through, got her her money in 30 days, eight weeks later she died. Wow. Now, that's an example Mm. of the challenge when you take on an assignment like you reference. Brace yourself for what you're going to hear and what you're going to be asked to do. That's one example. Yeah, Yeah. you were going to share another example. A lady came to see me, saw me, Mr. Feinberg, I lost my husband, he was a fireman at the World Trade Center. When the planes hit the buildings, he ran into the lobby and rescued 20 people and brought them to safety. Mm. He saw that another 20 were trapped. He ran back in a second time, brought them to safety. While he was running across the World Trade Center Plaza, Mm -hmm. he was killed by somebody who jumped from the 103rd floor and hit him. 
Oh, my goodness. If he had taken one step either way, uh-huh. he'd be here today. Don't you tell me, Mr. Feinberg, there's a God. <laughs> there is no God. No God would allow this to happen. And, I mean, you are riveted. Mm. And it is stories like that, and there are countless stories like that, are absolutely emotionally, psychologically debilitating. Yeah. That's the tough part. How did you personally deal with that day after day to have these stories? I mean, you have to have a release for yourself. Well, you better have, first, a very loving family. Yeah. That understands. Mm-hmm. You better have the country, from the president to Congress to the attorney general to everybody behind you. Bipartisan, no red state, blue state, no liberal conservative. This is apolitical. Mm-hmm. And you better have an outlet. You're right, Sydney. You better have an outlet yeah. like the opera, like classical music, mm-hmm. so that at night you're involved with the height of civilization. Beethoven, Brahms, Mahler. During the daytime, the yeah. horrors mm-hmm. of civilization. And you try and uh, keep an even keel if you can. There's a bit of an analogy in that. I have a friend who is a pediatric neurologist, and he deals with children, babies that have brain issues. And that's got to be a horrible, difficult thing. Not all of them make. And he, that's what he does. And I once asked him, you know, because he's so even keeled, so relaxed, really, with his own family. And he has forced himself not to take that home. And he said it's hard, sometimes really hard, but he can't function otherwise. And he can't do his job otherwise. And that sometimes can come across, he didn't say this, and I'm not talking about him specifically, so it's more of a question, that can sometimes come across as almost cruel, like you don't really care about people. Did you ever have to deal with that, that people, because you had to be professional, doing your job, and you could not be drawn into these deep emotional traumas. And I imagine someone sitting across from you might react maybe negatively on occasion to that. Oh, I think that's right. I think that anytime you do any one of these programs, 9-11, the Boston Marathon bombings, whatever it might be, the Virginia Tech shootings, you better be prepared for criticism that you are unfeeling, unsympathetic, or you have a heart of stone. Hmm. And it goes with the territory. You expect that. Yeah. I must say in 9-11, you know, when the President of the United States, the Attorney General, and the Congress ask you to take on this duty, this patriotic duty, you better maintain a professional objectivity to the best you can. Mm -hmm. And I did the 9-11 fund for 33 months absolutely pro bono. I couldn't see how you could possibly be paid for taking on this assignment. So that was a decision I made, which I thought was absolutely the right decision. Right, right. Have you had occasion to meet any of the victims years later for under, want to get back in touch, or you had any occasion to? Has that ever happened? No, and I've studiously avoided that. Yeah. I think people back then who lost loved ones or were traumatized Mm -hmm. or injured Move on as best you can. There's no reunions. There's no meat gatherings. Mm -hmm. This is a moment in time, the tragedy and the compensation. That is it. And other than my writing a book about it and a movie being released in 2020 based on the book, there's no reunions or no effort by me, nor should there be, to meet with victims. Yeah, just let's do a little reminder for our uh, listeners. So the book that you wrote was back in maybe 2005, give or take? That's correct. And what got... is life worth? Uh-huh. And what's the movie? Um... And the movie, which is, I believe, is, is, is What is Life Worth, will be released on an account of the book, based on the book. A movie starring Michael Keaton as Kenneth Feinberg, Amy Ryan as my colleague Camille Byros, and Stanley Tucci as a survivor. Mm. That movie will be released nationwide sometime in 2020. Don't know exactly when. It'll be appearing in the end of January at the Sundance Film Festival in Utah, and that'll be the world premiere. That'll be the world premiere. Wow, that's something. That's going to be gripping because people are going to see, get a bit of a glimpse at a safe distance of what happened, right? That's right. The 9-11 fund is now, I tell people, is really part of American history Mm. rather than contemporary affairs. But it's not lost, I think, its impact on the American people. Yeah, I mean, this is an entire generation will remember where they were when they heard about it in the same way that a previous generation knew where they were when Kennedy was shot. 
Right. It's exactly. It's exactly. Pearl Harbor and that. Right. If you go back another that's generation. Right. That's, that's exactly right. right. So you've also done, you've alluded to it, a bunch of other mediations and distributions. And you were involved with the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill fund, where BP, in that case, BP hired you to decide who would get paid and, and what. So that was different in many, many ways, of course. It was a company. And it was a company that was clearly, I'm going to say as an outsider, clearly at fault. How big was that fund, actually? That fund, uh, we ended spending, we ended that. A fund that was announced by the White House in BP was $20 billion. We resolved 92% of all the real eligible claims arising out of the spill in 16 months. And we spent $6.5 billion of that $20 billion and resolved about a half a million claims. So what happens to people that there's no resolution? They will sue? Is that what happens? If there's no resolution, if we wouldn't compensate them, they had the option, if they wanted, of filing a lawsuit in New Orleans. Many did. That was an alternative remedy. If you didn't want to voluntarily, like 9-11, you didn't want to voluntarily come into this fund that I administered. And so in that case, in the BP case, you really did come under a lot of criticism. I guess you always do in every one of these cases. And that is, if I understand what the critique was, that you were employed, tell me if this is right, by BP in a sense, and you were distributing BP money. And so your interests were on the side of BP and not the victims. And I guess that was true in 9-11, but not quite the same. Very different. You're absolutely right. In BP, the criticism was how independent Mm -hmm. can Ken Feinberg and his brand really be if he's receiving Mm -hmm. monthly compensation from the very company that caused the disaster? And although I tried to explain to everybody, well, I may get paid by BP, Mm -hmm. but BP has no authority or power to review or challenge any of my individual claims decisions. With the White House approval, I have been delegated full authority to decide the merits of an individual claim. And neither BP nor anybody else can challenge my decision. Those were very good words, but there were many people down in the Gulf Mm -hmm. who felt that notwithstanding my statements, I am a BP agent. Mm -hmm. Now, I got around that problem. The only way I've concluded you can get around that perception problem, and that is over a very brief period of time, paying out huge amounts of money. Nothing is more effective in challenging criticism of a program than by pointing to the generosity of the program, the speed of the program, the efficiency of the program, and the fact that Well, you say I'm not independent and I'm an agent of BP. Well, I just want you to know that in the first uh, three months of the program, I've paid out over $300 million to claimants in the Gulf. How much of a challenge is this? I mean, there it is, folks. After a year, I've paid out $4 billion before the first trial is even scheduled in New Orleans. Mm. I must be doing something right. That went a long way, I yeah. must say, yeah. to blunt criticism of the program. Has there been a um, disaster, a scandal in recent times that you haven't been involved in? Well, I had nothing to do with Madoff scandals. Oh. Bernie Madoff, my contemporary, Irving Picard. Yes. He handled all of Madoff and is still doing it. Still doing it. Uh, he is a national treasure, what he's done. Mm. And I've spoken to him only on one or two occasions. That's one yeah. he's handled. But you've done Penn State and the Sandusky, Volkswagen, I guess, cheating on the gas emissions and diesel. Yeah, but re- Boston remember, Marathon. Yes, I've done all of those. Um, but Sandy Hook, the shooting of the first graders in Connecticut, and the Aurora, Colorado dot. Uh, how do you shoots. how do you do all that? I don't. Each one, as you even say it, as people listen, one horrible thing after another, and you're facing it. First of all, I don't ask to do it. It's not like I decide this tragedy is worthy of a compensation program and this tragedy isn't. Governors, presidents, Congress, mayors, Mm -hmm. local officials, they decide. Mm -hmm. The American people decide Mm -hmm. in many of these programs. Mm -hmm. Here's the money. We need somebody to design a program and administer it. I'm asked to do it. I've done it before. Let's let him do it again. And if you're asked to do it, you uh, step up like most American citizens would if they were asked. Yeah. Most of them, not all, most of them pro bono. I don't want to get paid for distributing $60 million to the victims of the Boston Marathon Mm -hmm. bombings. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, Mayor Menino and Governor Deval Patrick, they asked me to set up that program. I'm from Massachusetts. I agreed to do it. If you can handle the emotional part of this, Sydney, the emotional part, the rest of it falls into place, I think, fairly. Uh, fairly yeah, because you know how to do it. You have a system on how to do it. And I'm really thinking exactly what you just said, which is the emotional side of this. It's the emotional part. It's when you get a call from a woman who, as a result of the Boston Marathon bombings, lost both limbs. Mm. And her husband lost one limb. And will I come and see them because they're not ambulatory? Mm-hmm. They can't come to see me in Boston. Will I visit them at their home? And I went and saw both of them. And it's very, very debilitating. I got to tell you, you don't leave a meeting like that without being shaken emotionally by what you've seen. Yeah. As we're talking, I'm thinking about how do you determine the value? Is everyone treated equally, which according to the law is probably a good idea, but every case has different nuance. And there's probably an unlimited variation of things that could have happened to a victim, say, 9-11 or, or, or Boston Marathon. How do you determine this? It's actually not difficult. It is one of the uh, easier parts of what I Really? Do. First of all, if you've got a private fund, which is not an alternative to going to court, it's a gift. The Boston Marathon bombing. There's $60 million donated by private citizens and companies around the country. So I've got $60 million. That was the fund. That's where the money That's came That's the from. fund. It's privately donated money that okay. comes in, in the mail, from various people watching on TV and seeing what happens. And they send in a check or a business like John Hancock or Bain Capital yep. in Boston, give a million dollars. So you've got a fund. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a voluntary program like 9-11. You're automatically entitled to this money if you're eligible. What is a life worth? All lives are equal. Four people died in the Boston Marathon bombings. Mm -hmm. An eight-year-old or a 55-year-old wage earner. All lives are equal. It's not complicated. If you didn't die, but you were physically injured as a result of the bombings, all I want to know How long were you in the hospital as a result of the bombings? If you were in the hospital for over a month, $950,000. That's all they want to know. Three weeks, $750,000. Two weeks, $500,000. Hospitalization is a pretty good barometer of seriousness of injury. Mm -hmm. Simple, efficient. Now, if it's the 9-11 fund or the BP oil spill fund or the General Motors ignition switch program fund, That's an alternative to going to court. You voluntarily decide to take that money instead of litigating. And you cannot go to court afterwards. That's right. If you take the money. Because that's part of the deal you're signing. I hereby promise to take this money and not go to court. Got it. Now, that is not complicated. Judges and juries decide the value of lives every day in this country, in every court in the United States, whether it's city, village, Mm -hmm. hamlet county, whatever it is, what would the victim who died in the crash, what would that victim have earned over a work life but for the tragedy? Add something for pain and suffering, emotional distress, Mm -hmm. equals compensation. That's a formula that's been part of our nation since its founding. And I simply adopt that formula for every 9-11 victim. For every BP rig horror, Mm -hmm. for every GM ignition switch crash, that's what the victim gets. If you don't like that amount, if you're not satisfied Mm -hmm. with that amount, don't take it. Opt out. Litigate instead. Is there a negotiation in this? There's no negotiation. There can't be. Otherwise, you'd never end. There's no negotiation. I've made this decision. It is voluntarily up to you, victim, family, Mm -hmm. whether you want that money or not. Now, it so turns out that these programs are designed to be so generous that the overwhelming number of people, Mm. 97% in 9-11, 92% BP oil spill, 96% GM ignition switch program, they accept the money and gladly surrender their right to go to court with lawyers for years and litigate uncertainty, not sure, relive it, relive it, relive it. People don't want to do that. Right. What about some of these jury awards you sometimes hear about that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars for something? They often get knocked down, I guess, in appeals. Of course, is that what happens? That's right. 
So that's an emotional response from average citizens to a terrible thing that they heard. That's correct. That's correct. And with all of the benefits and positives that go with our jury system, and they vastly outweigh the negatives, I think. Nevertheless, juries sometimes, notwithstanding judge instructions, mm-hmm. come back with amounts that are so lawless in terms of their value that the courts are compelled, really, to reduce them. But I think the jury system is time-honored and is here to stay. Oh, yes. A different type of case that you've been involved with was TARP. Could you tell us kind of what happened, how you got involved with that, and what made that so different? top was a taxpayer bailout of financial institutions that without that taxpayer safety net might very well have gone bankrupt like Lehman Brothers So did. this is the financial crisis 2008. Nine. 2008, 2008 and nine. Eight and nine. And that's when the U.S. federal government put in billions of dollars to keep afloat or support various companies. That's correct. And Congress approved it. And so what did Congress do as a result of that bailout? Congress decided on populist revenge. It passed a law, very unique. And the law said those eight companies that received the most financial taxpayer assistance. And they named the eight companies. They named eight companies. AIG, Bank of America, Citibank, Chrysler, Chrysler Financial, GM, GM Financial. Mm -hmm. Any of these eight companies you will have, since the United States is now a creditor, they lent you the money to survive. Mm. Your salaries, your total compensation packages for the top 25 individuals in each of these companies will be set and determined by the Secretary of the Treasury. Well, the Secretary of the Treasury and the Treasury Department had no intention of taking on this assignment themselves. It's not the appropriate role of the Treasury Department to be setting the pay of private individuals. So the Secretary of the Treasury delegated Mm -hmm. to me, asked me officially, to be the special master, the official, who would evaluate and determine Mm -hmm. what each corporate person in these few companies would receive in the way of total compensation and the reasons. And over a uh, 12-month period, I determined how much each corporate official should receive in the way of private compensation. And each company stayed under my authority until, under the law, the company repaid all of the taxpayer tarp money it had borrowed in order to survive. And once that repayment was made, they no longer were under my thumb in terms of compensation. So a couple of questions, several questions come to mind. Number one, this federal government imposition of compensation a private company goes against a lot of rules and a lot of history and a lot of precedent. But they passed the law. And the question is, was that law ever appealed by these companies because they didn't like that idea? So, no. no. And maybe for political reasons? Yes. Yeah. Because they would have won, probably. Well, who knows? Who knows? Sidney Finkelstein's now a lawyer. I can't say whether they would have won or not, but you're absolutely but right. But it was a political instance, Politically, which company that <laughs> borrowed taxpayer money yes. is now going to go into court and try and, and uh, declare such a congressional law unconstitutional. There was no yeah. effort to do Okay, it. so they're not going to do that, which makes perfect sense. Second, this is a place where I can imagine there could be some negotiation when they come to you and they say, you know, Ken, and they've got tons of talent that can justify anything they want to judge. I mean, these bankers are in the business of putting a price for a company that somebody's going to buy and they can make any price work. And so they certainly could do that for their own compensation. Did that happen? Did it ever? Especially (laughs) the poster child for that was, of course, Bob Ben Moshe, the CEO of AIG, Mm -hmm. who in a series of meetings with me, back and forth, just like us, negotiated what he thought would be appropriate compensation packages that wouldn't gut the ability of his company to function Mm -hmm. by losing top officials. Mm -hmm. And we had ongoing negotiation about this. Then there were some companies like Bank of America that were so worried about what I might impose Mm -hmm. that they borrowed money to repay the taxpayer and get out from under my thumb. (laughs) 
so that they would not have to deal with more than one year of a compensation setting by the uh, special master. Yeah. So what type of, like, how did you do, that was an AIG example that you were talking about. I mean, I could see that argument that says, you know, we have this great talent. We need to get under this. We need to fix this problem. And we can't have an exodus. Now, where exactly they would go in that climate to get another job that would pay them what they might think they're worth is, as a side issue, you may very well have brought that up in those negotiations. Constantly. Constantly. Like, you don't have to. I was told that if you don't pay this CFO what he's worth yes. or what she's worth, yeah. you know where she's going to go, Ken? She's going to go to China. They said China. China. Oh, all the time. China. China. Everybody's going to China mm-hmm. to work. A threat. And that threat, by the way, received some credible support from officials at the Department of the Treasury uh-huh. who didn't want to see a company go under when the taxpayers had bailed them out and wanted them to thrive. Yes. So it was a very, very difficult so balance. So you had to kind of, you were in the middle of this. Exactly. Very interesting. And so did the AIG team get what they wanted? was a negotiation. At the end of the day, I think Mr. Ben Moshe, who was very effective, he agreed that his company officials would take a hit, but not maybe to the degree that I had initially suggested. And we worked it out, and we worked it out to the satisfaction of each of these companies so that nobody left. So nobody left. Is that generally true for all of these companies? Yes. I think this program, as you correctly implied, was sort of a sideshow, populist revenge imposed Mm -hmm. by Congress. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Congress had any intention of expanding the program to other corporations or getting the Department of the Treasury even more insinuating into the private right. corporate decision-making. Yeah. It didn't work that way. Um, this was a political... I have to say that now, even though that was a crisis, a once-in-a-generation crisis, it does set a precedent to suggest that somewhere down the line, some government may say... Because right now, there's, as you know, there's so much discussion about inequality and the ratio of CEO compensation to the average employee has just gone up by 10 to 100x, or if not more, over time. And so you can call that a populist thing, but that's a real economic thing. And I don't know, but I could imagine that this would be referenced as, you know, well, we did this in a crisis, and we are in a crisis now with the level of inequality that exists in this country. Perhaps. I think there are ways uh, that have been expressed publicly uh, to deal with inequality without having the heavy hand of government and the Treasury Department in particular. Yes. Imposing it's a very heavy, restrictions it's a very on heavy private hand. capitalism. Yeah. Mm. And I think that the likelihood, it's, it could happen again, the likelihood of it happening would require the type of traumatic crisis that we saw in 2008 and 9 to justify the statute. We're not going to get into politics, but there certainly are some candidates on the Democratic side that are close to that type of philosophy. I haven't heard any candidate, though, talk about suggesting that the government actually impose specific restraints on private compensation, either no. indirect inequality and taxes and other things. And the interesting thing, Sydney, is I must say, I didn't see during the financial crisis when I had this assignment, I didn't see much of support from the Department of the Treasury. Mm -hmm. I mean, to Secretary of Treasury Guidance credit, to his credit, he said to me, Ken, you know, I'm going to ask you to do this. We are not a compensation. We don't really play a role. We shouldn't play a role in determining here at Treasury Mm -hmm. what private companies pay their employees, their officials. It's not a role that we have historically played. It's not a role we're comfortable playing. You have to do this. It's a law passed by Congress. But Treasury didn't see this Mm -hmm. as a long-term, permanent I think what you're saying makes perfect sense. And I also haven't heard formally from any of the candidates something as significant as regulated compensation. And draconian is this. Yeah, but I also do not believe it's impossible. And I'm not advocating one way or the other. Those many people will or would, but I could certainly see it. And there are spokespeople, there are people that are advocating advocating for things that are quite similar to this, which would be quite a different world, quite a different country. The other fund that you were involved with that I think is a bit more, a little bit different as well, is the Department of Justice Survivors, the Fund for Survivors of State-Sponsored Terrorism. What could you say about that? What was different about Congress that? passed a law, and the law said if the Secretary of State designates a certain nation as a state sponsor of terrorism, like Iran. Mm -hmm. Best example, the hostages, the 400-some-odd hostages in 1979 that Iran seized from the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. If the Secretary of State designates 
a nation, as a state sponsor of terrorism, mm -hmm. Iran, North Korea, the Sudan, then any victim, whether an American citizen or not, any victim as a result of that traumatic bombing or shooting mm -hmm. or tragedy can submit a claim with the Department of Justice mm -hmm. and its designee, Kenneth Feinberg. And if that victim has a final judgment from a U.S. district court that he or she is, in fact, a victim mm -hmm. of terrorism caused by Iran or North Korea, whatever, mm -hmm. bring that final judgment to Feinberg and he will pay you. And he will pay you compensation out of a fund that is created by fines and penalties imposed on institutions promoting state-sponsored terrorism. BP Paribas, a bank, was laundering money or was fined over $10 billion mm -hmm. for its activities. Some of that money went into this fund, and I paid it out to over 3,000 victims who were satisfied the statutory requirements. And this is an ongoing program? Ongoing program until 2026. This program's in place, and every year there'll be a pool of money and that money will be evaluated and who will determine who's eligible, and that money will be distributed to state-sponsored victims. And when the money's used up, that's that. That's that. And you said that you didn't have to be a U.S. citizen to right. appeal to this. How could that be? You had to be, even if you weren't a U.S. citizen, you had to be employed by an American mm -hmm. institution. For example, African citizens who were killed or injured in the U.S. embassy bombings mm -hmm. in Kenya. Well, some of those individuals were American citizens. Others were local Africans that were employed by the United States embassy. They were so citizens or employees of the U.S. government. That's right. Only government or U.S. companies? U.S. companies. An independent company as well. That's right. That's a really different type of scenario, isn't Very it? Very different. So when you talk about, you know, under the rubric of sort of public and private compensation and Feinberg's role, you're absolutely right. The roles range from traumatic death and injury caused by isolated events like 9-11 mm -hmm. or the BP oil spill or the Boston Marathon yep. bombings. And then there, is, there are these cousins of these programs compensation programs not tied to mm. a traumatic single event, like compensating corporate officials after TARP or compensating victims of state-sponsored terrorism. Right. These are rather unique, analogous situations mm -hmm. where someone is asked to come in and determine compensation and eligibility. You would say that you know your skill set, if you will, applies to all of these. I think that's right. Yeah. And the skill set that you find most interesting is the emotional trauma that you better brace yourself for mm -hmm. associated with every one of these programs. You, probably you would think that when you're deciding what to compensate an AIG official, after TARP, you would think that would be pretty dollars and cents and wouldn't pretty be hardcore business conversation. Hardcore business conversation without a lot of emotion. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a quick understanding that that is not the case. When you tell a corporate official that you're getting 50% less than what you received in the past, you better brace yourself for that emotion. Now, the emotion there is anger, to be sure, I would think. Did the emotion extend or was the cause that somebody felt that they were worth less because of that? That's exactly right. I thought, going into that program, that the official, the corporate official where I'm setting for a pay, would push back and say, my lifestyle, I can't live on a 50% cut. I'll have to give up my summer home on the Hamptons, mm. or I won't be able to send my kids to Andover and Exeter, or I'll have to sell one of my automobiles. Mm -hmm. I was very, very mistaken. They didn't say that at all. They didn't say It was that. how they felt personally about themselves. That is exactly wow. it, Sydney. Mr. Feinberg, if you cut my pay by 50%, that is evidence of diminished self-worth. That is telling me that I am no longer entitled to that compensation commensurate with my work over the last few years. And don't tell me that I still have my integrity and my prestige in my community work among family members. When I look in the mirror, I now see diminished self-worth, and that is very, very emotional. And I wasn't prepared for that. You were not. I would have thought people have other anchors of self-worth. Community church, 
community work, family Mm. love, Mm. doesn't work that way. It's so interesting because what you're saying is that the identity that these people have, how they define themselves as human beings, is completely interconnected to their job. That's exactly right. Even though our identity has so many other dimensions to it. That's right. And you would think. But then you realize as you talk to these individuals, Mm. men and women, they're one of the top 25 officials at Bank of America or at Citibank. And if you're one of the top 25, you begin to understand that takes on a penumbra and a worldview tied to performance on the job. That trumps all else. And you better brace yourself for the emotion you're going to hear from those people. The role of compensation in this case, or money more generally, is quite as the arbiter, as the mechanism to achieve some degree of fairness, is in and of itself completely logical and kind of obvious. And another dimension is really kind of odd. That's exactly right. The formulaic part of any of these assignments when it comes to compensation Mm. The formulaic part, the dollars and cents part, is not rocket science. It really isn't. There are millions of Americans, I think, certainly people at top could do this, can tell you that. (laughs) It's the emotional side of it. And you better brace yourself if you take on one of these assignments. I tell people all the time, you know, brace yourself because you are going to get a lot of emotional anger, frustration, disappointment, and it's part of it goes with the territory. So when someone gets a settlement, any one of these cases, I can't imagine for many of them, especially these personal tragedies, they're happy because their life is affected in a dramatic way and money can't possibly make up what they've lost. On the other hand, it's considered when someone feels like they were treated fairly and they're not angry that they should have gotten more, there's a degree of fairness implied in there, but it's money. It's not all these other things about life, about eyesight, about walking down the street for them. That's right. When you design and administer any of these programs, do not use words like happy. Mm -hmm. Do not use words like fair. Do not use words like just. There's nothing happy, fair, or just in providing people a check for personal loss or diminishment. Mm -hmm. There really isn't. And anybody who thinks that, well, at least Ken Feinberg was fair in how he distributed the funds. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's accurate. I think what I do is not really fair or just. It's more mercy. Mercy is what I'm dispensing on a financial plane. It's mercy, at least in terms of tragedy. And I try and avoid words like fair and just and happy because the number of people who come to me after the Boston Marathon bombing, I got a call from a man, Mr. Feinberg. I lost my leg at the hip from the Boston Marathon bombing and I'd like to come and see you, but I'm still at Spalding Rehab Hospital in in Boston and I can't come to see you. I said, that's all right, Mr. Jones, I'll come to see you. So I got in a taxi and I went over to the hospital, and I walked into his hospital room, and there he is sitting, lying in a hospital bed with one limb gone. His nine-year-old son is sitting on his lap, and around the bed, his brother, his mother, sitting around the bed. Mm. I said, Mr. Jones, this is terrible what's happened to you. Terrible. You will be getting from the Boston Marathon one fund, Boston, $1,250,000, the loss of the life. I wish I could do more. And he looks at me. He says, you're going to give me a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars I got a better idea. You keep the money, Mr. Feinberg. Give me my leg back. How's that? I want the leg. You keep the money. How's that for a trade? Mr. Jones, I wish I could do that. I don't have that power. All I can do is provide you this compensation. Yeah, great. I left there as fast as I could. There's nothing you can say. What can you say to somebody like Mm -hmm. that? You learn in what I do. Empathy is a valuable commodity. And the less you say, the better. Because people are angry and they're frustrated and it can be tarp. You're cutting my compensation 50%. How dare you demean my self-worth by telling me arbitrarily you're cutting my salary by 50%. How dare you? And... What can you say? What can you say? Ken Feinberg, Pulse nightclub attack. What happened there? Every one of these shootings, every one of these programs that we've talked about have certain wrinkles or or curveballs. In the Pulse nightclub attack, 48 people died in that nightclub because of a terrorist shooting. 
Pulse was a gay nightclub. And now it comes time for Ken Feinberg, who's asked by the city of Orlando to design and administer a compensation program to distribute about $30 million to the victims Mm -hmm. and their families. Well, on occasion, we find that if somebody died in the Pulse nightclub attack who was gay, the parents of the victim, the biological parents, object to the compensation being distributed to the victim's significant other. Mr. Feinberg, my daughter died at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, You're going to distribute $500,000 or whatever. You've received a claim form from her significant other. Well, they weren't married. They weren't married. Mm -hmm. This was a gay relationship. Mm -hmm. Under the law of Florida at the time, her significant other isn't entitled to that money. It's not. No. There's no same-sex marriage in Florida at that time. Mm -hmm. Send all the money to us. We're the biological parents. We think my daughter was going to come to her senses and not stay with us. They actually said that? Oh, my goodness. We saw it in 9-11, too. Now, what do you do there? Mm. You try and work it out. You try and get the biological parents to acknowledge that some of the money should go to the significant other. And you warn the biological parents that if we can't work this out, we're inclined to send this money into the probate court in Florida. Go argue there. I'm not in the personal business of staying in place forever on these programs. And we usually work out some allocated consensual arrangement of the money. But in 9-11, there were 18 disputes out of 5,300 eligible claims. 18 people could not agree among the family or the significant others or the gay relationships how to distribute the funds. And I deposited the money in the New York probate court. Go find it out there. I'm not going to take sides. There were 18, you said. That were not resolved. I know that there are more where the victim was gay that were resolved. That were resolved. We worked it out. I used my mediation skills. And in Orlando, Pulse Nightclub, there were many claims where there was a dispute between the legal biological parents Mm -hmm. and the gay significant other over who should get the money. Remember, if the significant other was married to the victim. Sure. Gets the money. Different story. Under Florida intestacy law. But at the time, significant others of the same sex were not in touch. And so some parents actually didn't even want to acknowledge or maybe even admit that their son or daughter was gay? That's right. Wow. That's right. Or, alternatively, she had come to her senses and was moving out and wasn't going to have a significant other. Mm -hmm. So we want the money. Yeah, you know, in everyday life, when someone dies in a family, you discover, and there's a will, you discover what people are really like. And you have seen that at a kind of gigantic level. Oh. That's right. And it's not all greed, you see, yeah. Sydney. It's not greed. Mm-hmm. I don't think greed's the primary motivation. I think people who have had their lives wrecked by tragedy want to find a rationalization. Mm. Mr. Feinberg, my son was engaged to be married. He was going to break the engagement. So don't give the fiancé the money. It was never going to be a marriage. There wasn't, I can't cope with this. Mm. Yes, the vagaries of human nature, how you react to tragedy. Right. Well, Ken, we're going to wrap up maybe with two last questions for you. First, imagine that you can go back in time, kind of sit down next to the 21-year-old Ken Feinberg, just probably still in school and early in his career, and you want to give, you want to give the 21-year-old Ken some advice about life, about work, about anything. What would it be that you would share? What would you say to yourself? Don't plan too far ahead. You may think you know what you want to do with your degree and the line of work you want to get into, and how you want to prioritize certain professional objectives. Be careful about relying too much on that. Life has a way of modifying and altering the best laid plans. Mm. And if I've learned anything over the last 40 years, it is that life has a way of throwing positive and negative curveballs at everybody. And I tell my law students, you may think you want to enter corporate law or litigation, or estate law. Don't make your objective your life's plan. I am much more fatalistic than I ever was at 21 about the vagaries of human life and decisions and life-altering plans. And I think 21-year-olds all too often think they have mapped their future. 
and life doesn't work that way. Yeah, and sometimes when you've mapped that future and you're so focused on getting there, you leave out a lot of opportunities for left turns and right turns that can create all kinds of value to you in a personal right. life and a professional That's life. That's right. Yeah. Last question. So you've been married for... 46 years. 46 years. Same woman. <laughs> How did you guys meet? Blind date. Really? Blind date. My wife... At the time, in 1973, I'm sorry to interrupt. You're going to have to explain blind date for that generation that grows up with Match.com. <laughs> My wife at a blind date. That is, somebody knew both of us and suggested we'd be uh, happy together. And my wife used to go uh, travel to work every day on a bus with a friend, and the friend knew me and said, you know, you ought to meet Ken Feinberg. Mm -hmm. He's an up-and-coming lawyer, and he works in New York City where you work, and you're not a lawyer, but you'd like Ken. And she said, well, I don't know about meeting someone I've never met, but okay, you recommend it. Mm -hmm. So I called my wife, and I went and saw her, and at the end of the first date, the first date, I said to myself... I think I'm going to marry this woman. Did you really? Yep. I said to myself, and she said at the end of the first date, I may give this guy one more date, but he is not for me. <laughs> and it took about uh, three months to sort of uh, become. There's the master dispute resolver yeah, at right. work, right? <laughs> Ken Feinberg, thank you so much for Sydney, spending time with us on the podcast. Thank Sitcast. you. Honor and a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. Episode number 50. No one ever told me that a season of podcasting is usually 12 or maybe 24 episodes, so I just kept going. And now it's time for a break. A chance for you to catch up on episodes you may have missed but wanted to listen to and a chance for me to recharge. Thank you so, so much for listening to the Sidcast. It's really been a pleasure and an honor to talk to so many people about their lives and their journeys. From Jillian Apps, episode number two. The Canadian Olympic hockey star with three gold medals to her name, now trying to recreate herself after giving up the game as a leader in an entirely new world. To Kate Spear in episode 34, a woman who has gone through the darkness of mental illness, misdiagnoses of that illness, to the brink of almost almost committing suicide. To hear her tell her story of recovery, of how powerful the unremitting love of a dog can be in that recovery, how far she's gotten all the way to being the CEO of the doggist. Just a powerful episode. We've had guests from the world of sports. Jim Beatty, the guy who pitched and won a game for the Yankees in the World Series in episode number six. To Mark Shapiro, episode 20, the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays, a team that plays in pretty much the toughest neighborhood in sports, with the Yankees and Red Sox sparing nothing to win. To Keegan Randall, episode number 30, an absolute legend in the world of Nordic skiing. The first American woman to win an Olympic gold medal in cross-country skiing, and then one year later to be diagnosed with cancer and fighting back, and fighting back strong. We've talked to professors who've changed how we think about life, like Eric Osterberg on climate change in episode 35. Musicians from jazz, classical music, and the theater. Entrepreneurs creating businesses all over the place, from what may be the best coffee shop in New Hampshire, and my favorite, Deb Shinglinger, the owner of Lucky's Cafe in Lebanon, New Hampshire, episode number three, to Eric Fossum, the guy who invented the optical technology that we all use every day in our smartphones, episode number 29. Most of all, I'm so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode and many of the others as well. And I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests for season two, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll continue to tune in to another one of our episodes, especially now that I'm giving listeners a little bit more time to catch up. I hope you'll continue to give us five-star reviews, and if you haven't, it's definitely not too late, and that you continue to share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. Oh, and one more thing. Get ready for season two in the spring when my first guest will be the president and CEO of the Boston Red Sox, Sam Kennedy. Until then, happy listening and happy learning. <laughs>